And a very good morning to you. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through till midday today with another edition of Smart Arts. And big thanks to the Breakfasters. They'll be back with you tomorrow morning between 6am and 9am. Today's program is going to be a little action-packed. Uh, the last couple of weeks I've had a, a slightly gentle pace and I'm making up for that today with nine interviews over the next three hours. We've got a bit of a focus on contemporary dance today. We're going to be chatting with Raphael Bonicella, the Artistic Director of Sydney Dance Company, uh, coming up in about 15 minutes' time. And then at the end of the show, bookending the show with contemporary dance today, uh, at 11.30 as part of our Dancing on the Radio segment, we'll be chatting with the co-founder and artistic director of the New Zealand dance company, Shona McCulloch, about the show Rotunda, which she's choreographed on at Art Centre Melbourne from tonight. In between, we're going to be chatting with a couple of the actors from MKA Theatre of New Writing's double feature as part of the Neon Festival of Independent Theatre at the MTC. We're going to find out what uh, comic book artist David Blumenstein got up to when uh, uh, he decided to attend a, a protest slash uh, pickup uh, celebration, really. Um, you probably remember last year when an infamous pickup artist came to town to try and uh, run some workshops and got driven out of town fairly quickly. Well, David went along to, uh, to watch and monitor that and has turned the whole thing into a graphic novel. So we'll be chatting to David a little bit later on about that experience. Plus, during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival recently, the Herald Sun took it upon themselves to publish not only a list of the best shows in the festival, but a list of the worst shows. And uh, as a result, the Butterfly Club have chosen to program a special season of those comedians in order to support them, because when a newspaper singles you out for derision, it can have an impact on your box office and audience attendances. So good on the Butterfly Club for stepping up, and uh, we'll be chatting to Simone Pulja, the director of the Butterfly Club, as well as a couple of the performers uh, who are doing a special season there. We're also going to chat to an actor by the name of Stephen Rook, who is playing the iconic role of Ned Kelly in a touring production of Kelly, uh, which is coming to Hawthorne Arts Centre and also the Performing Arts Centre, whose name I've temporarily forgotten. That's embarrassing. In Albert Park. Whoops. Uh, luckily, I'll have a media release in front of me when I'm talking to Stephen a little bit later on. Gasworks, of course. I knew it would come to me eventually. Uh, plus, Visual Arts at the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. Uh, a circus cabaret fusion called Pescado, which is on at NICA. We're caught talking to a couple of the circus trainers. And the Western Edge Youth Arts Ensemble's uh, Iago. Uh, their take on Othello and sexual jealousy as put through a contemporary lens. It's going to be a busy morning. How about we have a track to catch our breath? Joining me on the line, the Artistic Director of Sydney Dance Company, Raphael Bonicello. Raphael, good morning. 
Good morning. So you're presenting Frame of Mind at the Sumner Theatre, at the MTC's South Bank Theatre in South Bank. Uh, Frame of Mind is a double bill, a new work from you, and then a groundbreaking work, rarely uh, given the opportunity to be seen in Australia, created by groundbreaking choreographer William Forsyth Quintet. Yes, so. Uh, to begin That's with, right. I just wanted yeah. to ask whether um, were you nervous at all putting one of your own works next to a work by Forsyth? Well, it's um, it's not the first time that I was sharing uh, a double bill um, with the work of William Forsyth, so I broke that 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 one earlier. But this is a work that is called Quintet, and that has been described as a masterpiece. So, in every way, to have uh, been able to present this work for us here at Cine Dance Company for for Australia, it's a great great achievement and a wonderful opportunity. So, for me, more than anything. It gave me strength because um, it's such a talented choreographer and someone that I admire so much that I was creating my own work wanting to be the best I could ever be. What is it about Quintet as a work that is so significant and so inspiring? I mean, I know obviously it, there's a very human aspect to it, given the personal mm. circumstances of uh, Forsyth's relationship and his terminally ill wife when he made the work. But beyond the emotion that infuses it, why is Quintet such a significant work of contemporary dance? Um, Quintet was created uh, 20 years ago, around 20 years ago, um, in 1993, and he created it with Ballet Frankfurt, which at the time um, was breaking, you know, reorienting the practice of ballet. He was really breaking many rules, and he had an ensemble of dancers that were uh, beyond anything, and just so uh, skillful and technical, and, um, and and everything about the work that he made was. Um, different. But with Quintet, he went into a very emotive, a very human, a very uh, gentle place. At the same time, full of strength and attack and bravery. So it's one of those works. Also, I have to say that it's using an incredible heart-ranging um, piece of music by Gavin Bryas, uh, which is called Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me. So it's when everything comes together um, in a piece of dance, the music, the, you know, the staging, the, the, the dancers, and it just um, moves you, which is what dance can do best. Now, in terms of uh, moving and emotion, I understand that your own work that is appearing in the double bill, um, it's, I've been told, I don't know whether this is true or not, but it's also got a, a very um, emotional resonance, given that in some ways it's perhaps been inspired by your sense of, of separation and loneliness from friends and family in Europe. Well, last year was... Um a very hard year for me simply because um, my mom actually had an accident. She fell down the stairs. She spent 10 months in hospital. I'm saying this, but she's okay now. But it was a very traumatic um, situation. And it's the first time in 26 years that I've lived away from Spain that I really felt um, the distance, that I really felt how hard it was when people that you love and needs you, but you're so far, so, so far. And Frame of Mind, the title, in a way, says it all. 
it was about um, this, uh, this, this realization of um, how things can change so quickly, how one, one event, one, one slipping down the stairs can change someone's life forever, not just their life, but everyone around them. So it came from a very, the piece is not about my mother in any way, but it was the trigger to make me think about how things that happen around us make us feel in one way or another and see things in one way or another, our frame of mind. And it seems a, then a very apt pairing to have uh, your work frame of mind and Forsyth's uh, piece quintet on a double bill, given that both are rich, emotionally resonant works that may not necessarily be about a particular event, but certainly uh, drawing inspiration from such human uh, aspects of our lives. Yeah, you're very right. And that's the one thing that dance can do very, very well. So... It's an absolute coincidence also that what happened to me, I mean, what happened to me in terms of my family and living away and so on um, was never planned. <laughs> and Quintet was a work that was going to come to us. You know, it's something that I've been trying to get for the last two years. And we finally managed to secure the opportunity to do it. And then this happens to my life and it throws me. And then I decide to make a piece that's so, so emotive. And yeah, it's how, as an artist, you, you know, when you deal with movement, with something that it is essentially abstract, movement is an abstract form, but you're able to, to throw all of your emotions and feelings and into it. It's, it becomes something very special because everyone in the audience can relate to it individually in their own as, as, as who they are themselves and that's a very beautiful thing in terms of throwing yourself into work tell us about the uh, the experience of the dancers working on quintet i understand it's a work for five dancers what were the, what sort of challenges did the members of your company face kind of uh, well, uh, when uh, having this this choreography kind of worked onto their bodies yeah, I think um, um, I've heard them talk about it, um, and they didn't know what to expect, of course. they Most of them had not performed the work of uh, William Fawcett, but they knew, obviously, you know, uh, about the significance of, of performing one of, of his work, one of his most poignant and personal works. But it was incredible because when you, you know, when you see the work, um, there is... Um, a choreographic thread and an intention and everything that's behind the movement that's very specific but at the same time they were allowed to be themselves and to find themselves within the movement so they were given instructions they were given steps as per se but also a lot of freedom within it and that doesn't mean that they and far from it in fact that they go on stage and just do anything it's just that they're able to to find their own personality and to find their own relationships within this work which is only for five dancers for 26 minutes very demanding on stage so you're very exposed in every way and um, it was a wonderful experience from not knowing what to expect i know by fact that they've had a wonderful experience if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Raphael Bonacella, the artistic director of Sydney Dance Company, uh, and the company are presenting their double bill frame of mind at the South Bank Theatre in the, Thum in the Sumner, uh, previewed last night, opening tonight, and running through until the 16th of May. Now, Raphael, you mentioned that there's obviously a, a significant musical component to Forsyth's Quintet, one of the two works uh, in frame of mind, but I understand there's also quite a significant musical element in your own work, frame of mind as well. You've worked with one of the members of, uh, of the band The National. 
Yeah, I'm, one of the things that was very important for me when I was thinking about the work that I was going to make, I always had in my mind the music of quintet, which is very lyrical and very involving and sublime in every aspect of it. So I was determined to find something that was as powerful and as significant, but in a very, very different way. And um, I came across it, uh, and the work is by Bryce Desna. Um, he's from the National. Um, I had met him before um, a few years ago, but I didn't know that he was composing contemporary classical music. And I came across this piece that the Kronos Quartet plays and commissioned, in fact, and I was like, Wow, this is amazing. I connected with this piece of music. And in fact, the whole thing about frame of mind and about making this work came because I really connected with this piece of music that's very vivid and fierce and urgent and very full of determination and life. So it's a, I call it like classical rock and roll because it's, you know, a string quartet, beautifully classical music, but with guts. Well, it sounds like a, a perfect accompaniment to the work of uh, your own choreography that you were talking about earlier. The uh, the double bill frame of mind opening at the Southbank Theatre in the Sumner tonight, running through until the 16th of May. You can book at www.mtc.com.au or by calling 86880800. And for more information about Sydney Dance Company themselves, go to sydneydancecompany.com. Raphael Bonicella, thank you so much for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. We just heard from She and Him from their album Classics, the track Oh No, Not My Baby. She and Him seems like an excellent band to introduce my next interview. I'm joined in the studio by Piper Huynh, who's uh, joining us to chat about Iago, presented by Western Edge Youth Theatre and the Edge Ensemble. It's uh, an exploration and a reinterpretation of some of the, the characters and plots and themes of Shakespeare's Othello, given the full title, The Tragedy of Othello the, of Othello the Moor of Venice. So not set in Venice, it's uh, set in, I believe, a rat-infested boxing gym. Piper, good morning, how are you going? Good morning, Richard, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, thank you. So before we get into talking about the show itself, just tell us a little bit more about uh, Western Edge. Western Edge is a, an organisation, non-for-profit organisation who are based in the west of Melbourne and we've been around for about 30 to 40 years making theatre with young people, um, people from different backgrounds, migrant, refugee backgrounds in particular. And how did you get involved with the ensemble? I, I actually uh, became involved in the ensemble through uh, being a participant. So I was working with them a lot as a young person and eventually um, I grew up with them and they invited me to be part of the ensemble last year, which was very exciting for me. Now, the, the new production that is on uh, in the Tower Theatre at the Malthouse. Uh, so as we said, it, it's a, an exploration of some of the, the themes of, of Othello, which famously deals with sexual jealousy, uh, which is not necessarily something that, I don't know, if we look at Shakespeare, we don't necessarily always perhaps think, oh, Shakespeare's ex exploring some pretty contemporary mm. themes there around misogyny and violence towards women and, and rape culture and some of those things that, are they there in the original play or are we 
kind of... I uh, guess they are most certainly in the original play, including, like, racism as well and misogyny. And the way we've taken the plot is that to make it more in terms of what is what it is for us today in a society, today how the themes are still there within the piece itself and with kind of things happening a lot recently, we thought that it was really important to have these themes within this play in particular and we've brought out other themes such as male violence and we've brought out characters who are of culturally diverse backgrounds. So we've got six ensemble members who are all from different backgrounds and we've all wanted to share our stories our kind of cultural perspectives on these kind of themes from a different culture well certainly uh, one of the central themes as uh, as on top of sexual jealousy in othello is obviously the exploration of racism uh, so and again once uh, a very very contemporary theme in australian society given some of the attitudes of people in power and some of the uh, the tabloid newspapers out there trying to whip up hate and uh, and fear um so tell us about how the ensemble have approached the the play have you just grabbed bits of Othello and, yeah, and so added we, to yeah. them? Or? We basically used it as a skeleton. Um, we started just listening and, and, and reading a little bit about the plotline of um, Shakespeare's Othello and then we decided to keep the names of some of the characters and create our own characters. Um, not so much based on um, the original but um, our own kind of interpretation and our own kind of ideas and experiences in our own lives. And that's where we kind of started. We started with improvisations and then we started devising and we started writing it all together. And that's accumulated in, in about a year and a half of work. We did a showing last year in November, which was very successful. And now we're doing it at the Cooper's Malt House in the Tower Theatre, which opens tonight, which is quite exciting. Um, and a little bit nerve-wracking too, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. <laughs> it's, it's certainly a step up for the Edge Ensemble. Um, we're kind of used to performing in halls or school groups and... Now we're in on a kind of main stage theatre, so it's we're all quite excited about it. I'm not surprised. Look, I'm excited to see the production as well. Uh, uh, it's always intriguing to see any contemporary twist on a, on a classic, mm. and we, we see a lot of that in theatre. Uh, we've certainly seen a lot of adaptations over the last few years, and in fact, the, the, the subject of adaptations has been a heat, something of a, of a heated topic. Um, I'm imagining that uh, heated topics are, are going to get thrown in your face a little bit uh, in, in this production of Iago. Oh, most certainly. Um, we had a little forum after our showing last year and a, a lot of uh, kind of themes or issues within the piece were certainly raised and um, it was great that we had that because then we did a redrafting, a redevelopment of the piece. So what we have for this show is most certainly very different to what I, we had in our development so the feedback that we received was very very important and essential to allow us to kind of show many perspectives and uh, give the message out of what we want to be saying. Which is exactly? I mean it's difficult yeah. to, to, to I'm sure you'll have one interpretation of, mm. of what the play of, and what you want to be saying and then perhaps some of the other cast members who as you've said come from very culturally diverse backgrounds Maori, Samoan, um, the, uh, Ghana, uh, Sudan and elsewhere. Um, does each person bring their own perspective and their own voice very much to the production and their own themes? Almost certainly I mean we've all grown up as Australians I mean b being born here however there's always that little kind of tiny different perspective because of the way we've grown up or the families that we live in and that's one of the things that 
really stands out within the play itself is that we all kind of have the same message or the idea of a certain theme, but it's always slightly different. And I think that's one of the, I guess, the beauties of the show is that there are so many different perspectives. Now, as we said, uh, this production of Iago, uh, presented by Western Edge Youth Arts, running from the 7th to the 9th of May in the Tower at the Cooper's Malthouse Theatre in Southbank, 113 Sturt Street, Southbank. Uh, you can get more information by going to westernedge.org.au. Now, um, the play does contain strong themes and sexual references, so uh, uh, if that's the kind of thing that confronts you, then maybe it's not the show for you. But it sounds like it's going to be uh, not only a valuable piece of theatre in terms of the experience that it's providing all the members of the ensemble, Piper, but also the the uh, valuable in terms of what it is saying about Australian I, society I today. I totally agree. I think when audiences enter the space and the, become part of the audience, everyone's kind of immersed in this kind of uh, world of the boxing gym and they're immediately taken into this world and confronted by the themes. Not so much confronted, but being part of it as a witness. And one of the great things about the show is that it's a physical theatre show where a lot of the, most of the actors are there on stage being quite physical with their boxing and as an audience member, I remember sitting in the audience just watching some of the scenes, it's, it's quite powerful to see boxing happening in front of you and it's quite exciting and exhilarating. Why sit it in a boxing gym? Uh, we found that because we wanted to explore the idea of violence, we thought a boxing gym would be great because boxing is quite violent. Um, even though they have gloves on, it's still quite violent and it's quite a male-dominant uh, sport. And we just thought that the two matched very, very well and it certainly has throughout our process. We've kind of still been finding great things that connect and it's been a lot of fun. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, the production is called Iago, uh, on from the 7th to the 9th of May, opening tonight in the Tower Theatre at the Malthouse. If you would like to book, you can uh, jump online, uh, malthousetheatre.com.au, uh, uh, or you can call 96855111. You can also check out more information about the production by going to westernedge.org.au. Uh, and I've been chatting with one of the members of the Edge Ensemble, Piper Huynh. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. I'm joined in the studio by two of the trainers from NICA, the National Institute of Circus Arts, over in Paran. Amongst other things, we're going to be chatting about Pescado, a circus cabaret fusion, which is the latest show NICA are presenting. But I'm also just intrigued to learn more about the, the training that NICA offer. So uh, joining me in the studio are Aaron Walker and Meredith Kitchen. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hello. So, Meredith, let's start with you. Um, what is exactly is it that you train people in at NICA? Uh, well, I think we're training people to become performing artists, basically. But that, of course, with circus includes a, higher, a lot of physical training. So a lot of the day is them training basic circus specialties and um, becoming very, very physically adept 
at not dying. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you say that uh, training uh, performers, I guess that means that then you're looking at the big picture. You're kind of talking to them about career and longevity as well as just the individual skills that they're learning. Yeah, how to physically manage their bodies because they have a quite a rigorous training session every day, all day. Um, we have physios on board that help them manage um, injuries when they come up and stresses and strains, how to manage their diet, um, get good sleep, pace their training out. They train um, one specialty, second specialty and group acts. So they have a variety of skills to kind of get involved with. And what are your own specialties? Uh, I teach the whole movement program at NICA because I, I have a dance background. And I'm an aerialist, so I've spent a while being an aerial performer. Now I'm an aerial trainer, and I coordinate the third-year level of the bachelor course. Fantastic. Okay. So Nike has been on the scene now for a decade. A bit uh, over a bit decade over now. A decade now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so contributing some really high-quality artists, which many of whom are then going on to work in uh, either working in their own companies, working in other touring companies uh, uh, from Circus Oz and Circa up in Brisbane, for example, working overseas as well but part of their training then is also about putting on shows each year yeah that's actually quite a big part of their Mm. training Mm. so tell us about the new show pescado pescado is in the smaller venue that we have transformed it at nica which is actually the the movement studio and it's being presented the thing about circus is you can present it in any way you like you can present it in a very sombre contemporary way or a very traditional way or as this one is in a very cabaret-esque style so this one is definitely it has a a band it has singers um it's very tongue-in-cheek uh and very very good fun um, when you say singers, is, is, does that mean that uh, we're, we're seeing some triple threat talents emerging from Nike? So they're not just Absolutely. doing circus, but they <laughs> yeah. are, they're vocalists as well. And musicians. And musicians, yeah, yeah. Mm. And roller skaters. Um, yeah, there's a lot of talent happening in that group. And it's the second year students who are putting on this show, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you say uh, that kind of staging a show is a, a big part of their training merit. Tell us a little bit more about that because it, it strikes me as an, that not necessarily something that students going into NICA might think about. They may think that they're going in, maybe they've graduated from the, the, the Fruities, for example, mm-hmm. uh, up in Albury Wodonga and they're coming in and they may just think, well, I'm now going to train rigorously in my skills development. But you're stepping back from that and saying, well, no, let's look at all those different aspects of career making. Well, if you're mentioning the Fruities, mm. not to get off too much off the topic of Nika, the Fruities uh, do a lot of shows as well. Mm-hmm. They, they have a very, very large performance program as part of their training. So when you think of it, uh, if you're going to train as a circus performer, as a dancer, as a musician, ultimately it's because you're going to perform. So... Uh, And that is a skill of how to go through the stages of putting something together, how to work with other people successfully, how to take direction, how to offer the skills that you have to help develop things, go through the whole process of, oh, my God, production week. We're sitting around and doing nothing Mm. the whole time, whereas it's all the safeties and the lighting. So they need to get that kind of experience so that they know what they're in for. 
Yeah, it's also the performative aspect of their learning, which is just as important as the technical aspect of their learning. Like directors do look for how adaptable mm. a performer can be, how creative they can be, what ideas they're going to bring to the table. The skills and the technique are like a presumed given. Like every director who's casting presumes that whoever they're going to take on, they have the skills already, but they want to they wanna see how creative they can be and how well they do perform and how well they collaborate with others. And also getting used to being on stage. I mean, I got used to it from the age of six doing dance at Stedford's, but some people are actually surprised. They come into NICA um, in their first year and they're 19, 20, and then you realise, oh, they actually haven't been on stage before. Okay, so they've got a lot to learn. Mm. But, mm. Uh, and in terms then of kind of drawing those skills together with this particular show, Pescado, a circus cabaret fusion, which you can uh, see at the NICA uh, uh, movement studio from the 13th to the 16th of May. It's got a bit of an aquatic theme, I understand. Definitely. It has, yes. <laughs> it's, I've seen a few runs now and it, it just gets funnier more humorous and kind of sillier as as you go and there's a lot of as very, Meredith said, a lot fishy. of tongue and cheek very fishy yeah mm. lots of uh, funny jokes going around yeah yeah it's good fun how do people adapt their circus training and and kind of the particular circus arts they may be focusing on such as i don't know whether it's aerial hoop or whether it's juggling or um, acrobatics generally to a circus theme i mean some so i can see i can I'm, i can imagine some synergies between them if anybody He's doing a tissue act, for example. There's a certain sense of the movement uh, as they're suspended um, that I could imagine could be like swimming. Mm. But mm. kind of then from a more physical acrobatic act, for example, kind of like if they're somersaulting and, and tumbling around, that doesn't ah. quite say fishy to me. Well, there's a synchronised swimming act. Ah. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of tumbling and... Dancing and throwing each other and about in that one. board and yeah, and there's a there's um, a character who is a walrus character and he spins balls on his head like a walrus would in you know traditional days. Um, so I think they've done a lot with the character development in yes. fitting the skill to the character and vice versa and seeing what works, what doesn't work. It sounds like it's going to be great fun. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. If you would like to get along and see Pescado, a circus cabaret fusion at NICA, a new work featuring second-year artists directed by Hayden Spencer and uh, Carita Farrar Spencer. Yes. Hopefully I've pronounced that yeah. almost yeah. correctly. Uh, you can get along to see it. It's on the 13th to the 16th of May at NICA uh, in Green Street, Paran. Uh, Wednesdays to Thursdays, 7.30pm, Friday, 6pm and 9pm. That's going to be an exhausting night for the students. It will be. Uh, and Saturday, 1.30pm <laughs> and 7.30pm. It's a, an approximately 70-minute show. Uh, not seven. Bookings <laughs> at www.nica.com.au And look, uh, Meredith and Aaron, just before I let you go, if there are any people listening who are thinking that they want to study at NICA, what advice would you give them in terms of how they get in, how they should apply uh, and... Uh, what kind of preparation they should do before they make an application? NICA runs pre-audition mm. workshops uh, two times a year. Yeah. Uh, that's always a good way to come in and see what you might be up for in an audition and also to be assessed and they get a, get, get a program of what they need to work on. Uh, just It's best just to contact the school, get on the website, uh, call up, ask some questions. There's always somebody yeah. who's going to help. Yeah. 
Okay. And, and they come from all different backgrounds. There's dance backgrounds, sports backgrounds, swimming backgrounds, gymnastic Acting, backgrounds. Yeah. Anyone who's had any kind of physical training in, in anything is welcome to apply. You've got the full gamut there. We have. Yeah. Uh, for more information, jump online, www.nica.com.au. Meredith, Aaron, thanks very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank, Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Triple R is the station you're tuned to, 102.7 on your FM dial and streaming around the planet at www.rrr.org.au. Wherever you are on the planet, I hope you're having an enjoyable day, Uh, particularly if you're over in the UK where there's an election happening and I would be absolutely delighted if the Tories get voted out. So please consider voting them out uh, if you are over in the UK. If you're not in the UK, perhaps you're in Australia and thinking, I want to hear about visual art and maybe go and see an exhibition or two. Well, you're at exactly the right point of the program. Joining me in the studio now, uh, the curator of the Visual Arts Program at the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, Amaya Cortis, and Anna Louise Richardson, curator of I Am, You Are, We Are, one of the exhibitions in the program. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. My very great pleasure. So, Amaya, we'll start with you. Um, when people think of FRAF, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, they do tend to think more about the film program, I sometimes think, because that's perhaps the larger, more dominant side of the program. But the visual arts program has been running as part of FRAF right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it has. And I think, um, I mean, you know, for me, I think... Um whether it be film or art, I think, you know, art and human rights is is such a, a perfect combination because there's, you know, obviously there's just so much to know about the world and other people's stories around the globe and I think uh, film in one way and visual arts in another way, uh, a very different way, I suppose, provide this opportunity for, for people to sort of, you know, have, have a moment and, and, and see a slice of life, I suppose, um, uh, into, into someone else's life, so, you know, in a place they, they may never have, have been before or never get to go or, you know, these really specific stories. And I think um, the visual arts is a really, really beautiful way to sort of um, experience that. And it's, and it's a sort of often not so, I mean, you know, as with the visual arts, it's not so literal, you know what I mean? And and uh, people can have a chance to really sit back, go and, and, and see some of the exhibitions and, um, I guess, have some thoughts for themselves and, and, and go online and explore afterwards and, and learn more about these things, yeah. so Yeah, and it certainly strikes me that... Uh, whenever human rights are, are being threatened or being oppressed, often it's the artists who are among the first to, to feel the boot of injustice coming down because we know that artists are often considered subversive and can use art, be it visual art, um, uh, such as photography, painting or film indeed, or literature for that matter, to, to challenge the status quo Absolutely, and to question and yeah. interrogate kind of government and power and control. Um, it's, it's a voice, I think, that people you know feel that they have. You know, It's something that they can do often when there's nothing else you know get out there and you know like street artists are you know often people who are um you know in positions of of poverty in in a lot of other countries um and and that's something where they can sort of go here's what i think it's right here you know out there on the walls for everyone to read or or see and, and experience so yeah often when we think about human rights violations we think of countries overseas but of course our own country is uh uh impinging in a significant way on the human rights of 
of refugees. And Anna, that's something that I believe the exhibition that you've curated, I Am, You Are, We Are, is referencing and exploring. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a part of the exhibition. Um, but the, the exhibition itself looks at a broader experience of migration and acceptance within the Australian sort of cultural landscape. So there's three artists in the show, Olga Saronis, Eva Fernandez and Marzia Muhammad Ali. And they all explore different aspects of their own cultural identity and how it fits in their experience of coming to Australia and building a new home. And Marzia particularly is someone who looks at refugee rights and exploring the experience of that refugees might have. And she's, um, she's very big in the activist scene in Perth. So all the artists are from Western Australia as well. Um, and, yeah. How did you get involved with the, uh, with the festival? Um, just happenstance. We, so the exhibition was set up with Chapter House Lane and then the festival contacted Chapter House Lane yeah. and said, would you like to be involved? And they said, yeah, we've got this fantastic exhibition which is perfect for your, the theme of the festival. For the program. And we, and would, you know, we were sort of looking around for things that were... I guess, you know, for the visual arts program that were just really powerful human stories, I suppose, and that's how I think at the festival we feel this everything in the visual arts program um, yeah. is. And, and, yeah, and so that's I Am You Are We Are was just a perfect, uh, I guess, thing for that. That's yeah. what the show's about, is telling these women's stories. Yeah. And may you tell us about some of the other visual arts components yeah, of the program? Yeah, sure. Um, so we have... Uh, uh, there's five exhibitions all up. Um, one of them is the one at Chapter House Lane. Um, uh, the others are... There's an artist called Rushdie Anwar. Um, he is a Kurdish artist and he's doing two really powerful installations for this year's festival. Um, they're, they're big works. They're both at Fed Square. One's in the atrium in the undercroft there and the other's in uh, No Vacancy Project Space. Um, Rushdie's own story is that he grew up in Kurdistan in uh, Halabja and uh, in 1988 under Saddam Hussein there was a, a chemical attack on his town um, which you might know is it's Bloody Friday or the Halabja massacre um, and his family and, and friends of course were really affected by this and you know people people died people were injured families were just completely torn apart um, and uh, you know, some of them moved to other places. I think his mother still lives there. And Rushdie came to Australia and he studied in Sydney and uh, and now in Melbourne. So I guess this was a, a hugely defining thing for him and, and his life. And, uh, and so both of the installations that he's doing follow this similar concept of, um, I suppose, his feelings of displacement, um, which is obviously a huge thing for, for people who have sort of, you know, fled really um, horrible times and places and events. And, um, and it's about, I guess, people who've, you know... Everything he does is, it seems to be about people whose lives have um, have changed dramatically just uh, by the interference of other people, basically. Um, so yeah, he works with really sort of earthy materials like wood and ash, and and uh, like he burns things and immerses things in water. And he's got uh, this common thread of, of this feelings of displacement. And he has two installations at, uh, at Fed Square this year, um, which we're really excited about. Um, they're is also Christian Thompson. He is uh, a bit of a, a coup for us. This is a world premiere. He's a he's a wonderful um, Australian artist, and he's doing a, an exhibition at Fort Delta Gallery, which is called the Imperial Relic. Um, and he 
I mean, you might know him. He did. He uh, his one of his works was on the one of the Melbourne trams during the Melbourne Festival. I don't know if you remember, Richard. I know you get very involved in the Melbourne Festival. Um, now he's based in London, isn't he? He is based in London, and he has this really he has this really interesting life. He um, he he grew up all over Australia um, with his family. His his great great grandfather was a senior tribesman of the Bidjara people in Queensland. Um, he spent the 1980s developing this crazy enthusiasm for punk rock and the riot girl movement and 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 he studied music and art and performance and he started a band and uh he was actually the first uh aboriginal uh studio artist at gertrude street contemporary art space which is pretty cool and um you know now his works are held in you know huge galleries i think kate blanchett actually has one of his His works as well yeah you know and um and he a few years ago, he was awarded the inaugural um, Charlie Perkins Award, um, t- uh, the scholarship, and, and he made history by becoming the first uh, Aboriginal Australian to be admitted to Oxford University, which, you know, Oxford University has a 900-year a history. So it's a bit of a big years. deal. Ah, that's nothing compared to <laughs> so 60,000 years of Australian yeah. kind of Aboriginal history. But, <laughs> but um, you know, he's, so he's this overall, you know, very impressive guy, highly respected sort of, I think, in the art world. And, and we definitely, have our little... Yeah. Definitely. Underground gallery for the, the festival at Fort Delta. Fort Delta in the, the Capital Arcade, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, one of the things that, of course, connects all of these shows, not only the, the fact that they're exploring human rights issues through art and that they're part of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, they're also physically connected by the fact that you can walk to all of them on a guided walking tour, Amaya, which right. I know <laughs> you're, uh, you're leading as part of the festival. Um, and I was just thinking, Anna, that... Uh, uh, I am, you are, we are. We were talking about the fact that uh, it's presented by Chapter House Lane, which is normally a series of windows. Uh, yes. But I understand that because of work that's being done outside St Paul's Cathedral, um, uh, the works have been moved indoors. They have. We are now occupying a space within the cathedral, which is amazing. It is an incredible space. It's very, very kind of reverent. It, it makes the show into something else as well it's it's very it's different to what we imagined isn't yeah, it but it's, but it's, it's beautiful yeah. yeah we may have an appearance of an organist this evening as well Ooh, it's the, the opening night yeah at six o'clock so it's a bit of an experience yeah. come along i went in there yesterday and and you know i just had this moment of hang on how come i never go to to you know churches and cathedrals unless i'm overseas you know there's just it's interesting isn't it that, yeah when you're a tourist thing. you might go oh i'll yeah. go and visit salisbury cathedral or something like the that the longest time I've ever spent in a church and it's absolutely peaceful. It's so nice mm. in there. Hanging in the works, you know, yeah, yeah. No, it's a beautiful, a beautiful spot. For more information about the visual arts program of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, hraf.org.au is the place to go, h-r-a-f-f.org.au. Uh, and if you would like to go on a relaxed and informative tour that uh, visits the, the visual arts program that is led by uh, Amaya Cortis, then uh, you can do that. Uh, when and where? Uh, it's on Saturday the 16th of May and there's two different tours. One's at 12 noon and uh, one's at 3pm uh, and we're basically just meeting at um, at uh, No Vacancy um, Gallery in Federation Square um, at the starting time and then I'll walk everyone around and hopefully they'll, you know, there'll be a bit of insight in, into um, more insight into the works I suppose with some talks from the artists and also from Anna at yep, that I'll exhibition. So yeah. Great. Uh, and the 
exhibition I Am, You Are, We Are, curated by Anna Louise Richardson on at St Paul's Cathedral, opening tonight at 6pm. It is indeed. Please come down. And uh, that is running through until the 31st of May. Uh, And as I said, for more information about HRAF overall, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, and all of the different aspects of the program, the film program, as well as the visual art program, go to hraf.org.au h-r-a-f-f.org.au Amaya, Anna, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks for having us, Richard. And I hope it's a very successful festival. Thank you. Thanks very much. changed significantly in his, his his approach, I suppose, for this time around compared to what he was last time. Last time he was probably just a bit too ranty and, and yelly and a bit too brash, whereas this time he's got a lot more subtlety in him and, and colour and movement and light and shade and all of those things. Now, the play itself is set uh, on the eve of Ned's execution at the Old Melbourne Jail, uh, and he is visited in jail by a priest who turns out to be his younger brother, Dan Kelly, who did not uh, die in the siege at Glen Rowan. And indeed, there are rumours that claim that is historical truth, although uh, the veracity of those rumours has never been proved. Uh, so it's an interesting, uh, I guess, construction for the plot, not only exploring an, uh, a national, uh, well, a national hero to some, a national villain to others, but then also really humanising him by exploring that tension, that dynamic between older brother and younger brother. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's a side of that no one's really explored in any sort of detail before that. You know, he's been he's been sitting in a prison cell for five months. He's he's got twenty seven bullets that, that he's had in him, or some some of them which are still there. Um, he's mentally a little bit frayed. Um, he's physically definitely frayed, and. Um, and then this last sort of confrontation with his brother, and and it does it is based on some amount of uh, not truth, but definitely speculation. There's, there's there was four um, elderly gentlemen in Queensland, all who claimed to be um, Dan Kelly later in their lives, and one who was was particularly convincing and had the, the initials DK branded on his on his backside and and burns all over his back, and um, he came out in the I think it was the forties, believing that the fifty year statute of limitations didn't apply to him, uh, and that he could be arrested for the crimes well, falsely I mean he could have been but uh, but he was extremely convincing and no one could ever fault him on the story so he's, he's buried a little pauper's grave out in western Brisbane and and uh, yeah it'd have been fascinating to actually you know at some point and get a probe down or something like that and see if we can figure out once and for all whether whether history is uh, recorded incorrectly at the moment yeah, um, well maybe someone will pay for a DNA test at some stage in the future Nice to know. If you have just tuned in, we're chatting to actor Stephen Rook, who's playing Ned Kelly, the Bush Ranger, in the Queensland Theatre Company touring production Kelly. Uh, you can catch it this Saturday, the 9th of May, 7:30 p.m. at the Hawthorne Arts Centre in Burwood Road, Hawthorne. Uh, and uh, after that, as we said, uh, it is going on elsewhere. There's, uh, if you go to queenslandtheatre.com.au, you can find a full list of tour 
considering dates and details. Uh, it's already been in Geelong. Uh, then uh, it's going on to after Hawthorne Arts Centre this weekend. Uh, three performances at Gasworks in Albert Park. Then on to the Drum Theatre in Dandenong, Frankston Arts Centre, Ringwood, Hillsville. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, you've also done Tasmania already, I believe. So we're in Tasmania at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. You're in Burnie right now, are you? I'm, in, I'm Burnie today. Yeah, we perform here tonight before flying back up to the mainland tomorrow. Fantastic. Well, look, it's uh, obviously a, a fairly long and exhausting tour, but nonetheless, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing the production and seeing what you bring to the role of Ned and indeed what all of your castmates uh, are bringing to this compact uh, but very dramatic story, Kelly, presented by the Queensland Theatre Company. Stephen Rook, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. We're going to talk comedy and we're going to talk the Butterfly Club, which, if you have not visited, not only has the world's largest and most impressive collection of kitsch, but also makes damn fine cocktails uh, and is an excellent place to lounge about in the city after work, having a drink and then perhaps seeing a show. Um, as part of... Uh a season that has been curated at the Butterfly Club in response to an article in Melbourne newspaper, The Herald Sun, uh, which listed not only the best shows in the recent Melbourne International Comedy Festival, but for some editorial reason, possibly driven because they knew it would get more clicks to the website, uh, they published also a list of the worst shows, which uh, some have considered to be a, a fairly cruel thing to do. One person who is, was not a fan of that article uh, from the Butterfly Club, Simone Puglia. Hello. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. That was, yeah, that was quite an article. It was. So published on the 16th of April and with no byline, which I thought was intriguing. Yes. So, well, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's exactly right. So it starts with no byline, so you Sorry, don't know a, who's behind it. What's a byline? A byline is uh, the name of the journalist who writes an article. Oh, yeah. And in this case, there's, yeah, there's not one there. That other voice you can hear is Claire Sullivan, who's <laughs> one of the artists whose show was listed uh, in uh, the worst of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, uh, listed because of the star rating, not because yes. of the actual show. The actual show is very good. Good. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, Simona, you obviously did not like that article. You thought it was kind of, what, cruel, inappropriate? Uh, look, I think it's bullying. I think that what it's doing is actually bullying. So it's one thing to get a bad review. I don't have an issue with the review itself. The journalists are experienced journalists. They know how to write a review. The reviews themselves... Uh, I have no issue with them whatsoever. And as a performer or as a theatre director, you know that reviews are something you live with. But to then go back to bad reviews, bunch them up all together and parade shows that have not gotten a good review um, for no purpose other than it seems to get a few clicks to a web page, then I really don't see the point in that. It seems cruel. Claire, what kind of impact does uh, having a bad review like that, not just published once, but then republished and paraded? Um... <laughs> Uh, well, uh, people were like, I'm sorry, Claire. I'm like, ah, it doesn't matter. I don't know. Uh, actually, my, it's funny, but my audience numbers didn't go down, but that's probably because all my friends were coming to watch the show, so. Rallying in support. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but, um, uh, I don't know, maybe Hunt, maybe Hunt readers don't want to come to my show, but that's all right. I don't want them either, so. <laughs> that strikes me as an eminently sensible response. But. <laughs> 
So, Simona, your response uh, to that article has been to group those comedians together to give them a chance to remount their shows in case their audience numbers did drop off as a result. That's right. So we couldn't reach out to, well, we tried to reach out to as many of them as we could, and some of them are physically not in Australia. Some others um, are not available. There's a number of reasons. There's life after comedy festival. Not quite as fun, but there, <laughs> still, people still have commitments. But we managed to find four who are keen to come back, and uh, um, that's four performances uh, of some of the worst of the fest, according to the reviewers at the Herald Sun. Um, and when I look at some of the names in there, I suppose you have to understand that he, at the Butterfly Club, we book shows sight and see. The way we book shows is to look at what a performer has done and look at craftsmanship. And we think there's absolutely something as a bad show. But a bad show is one where the performer doesn't know their lines, one where the performer rocks up drunk. One where they are late, one where they don't rock up at all. That's a pretty bad show. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, I suppose, an empirical way of saying that a show is bad. And anything above that that relies on an individual sense of humor, that, that, mm, that's not quite so black and white. So there's a lot of scope. Yeah, I mean, comedy is enormously subjective. And I do know that at comedy festival time, people who don't normally review comedy are often getting roped in by, news, by newspapers. Um, that happens a lot in Adelaide, for example, during mm. Adelaide Free. I know in the first couple of years of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the, uh, the Herald Sun, which had become the new media partner, was suddenly getting, I don't know, the, the finance editor to review <laughs> comedy or a photographer to review comedy. I think mine was a political journalist. Also, they came on the wrong night. And they were pissed off that their name wasn't on the door, so they were angry from the start, but that was my worst night anyway. But whatevs. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's something else with live performance, I suppose. It's that uh, it does depend on the night, so there is a, oh, a small yeah. but significant chance that you could just have a really, really yeah. bad, bad night. night. They came on my worst night. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Claire, tell us about the show that uh, you are restaging at the Butterfly Club. Uh, so it's called Space Cadet. Um, it's essentially I take the audience into space for me and we go on a, an adventure. Uh, it's very silly and very fun. I, uh, that, that's my pull thing, I guess. <laughs> silly and fun is a good combination yeah. for me. And why into space? Uh, uh, well, um, I guess I get kind of obsessions with things and then I want to write a show about them. But, like, I did this uh, bit, like, two years ago, I think, where it's, uh, it was set in the future and I, um, where Logan's run had happened for real. But instead of people going to the... Revolving carnival thing. I forgot. It's Logan's run where people get killed at thirty. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's uh, set in the future. So where this is a bit that I did on stage where Logan's run happens for real, and then uh, so instead of going to get like killed on the revolving thing, um, you had to fight a unbeatable robot, and in the bit I fought and we won. Anyway, I really like that idea of uh, fighting something and and the future. And anyway, it's kind of. So that's like a bit that I did two years ago. It kind of blossomed into my show. Which is one of the things that I find fascinating about performance, the idea that a seed of an idea can can be under the right conditions, be uh, watered sometimes with the actor's tears, uh, <laughs> nurtured and grow into a, into a completely new show. Yeah, totally. Like that, that bit where I fight the robot. It's not, got nothing to do with my show now. <laughs> but also my friend gave me one of those space blankets, you know, if you get hypothermia wrap around you. Yeah, she gave me one um, also two years ago and then I was like, that's kind of cool. And uh, so that's also another seed of where the show came from. So, Mona, the other shows that are in this uh, this 
programmed lineup in in response to the Herald Sun's reviews, uh, and and kind of as you say, they're they're bullying and shaming um, of uh, of particular shows in the comedy festival. Who else is involved? I know that uh, a performer I'm rather fond of, Bo Heartbreaker. Ah, uh, yes, Bo is on Saturday, so let's go in order. There's three shows left. Tonight is Claire in Space Cadet, and tomorrow will be Sean Bedlam from Two Bearded Ladies, and then on Saturday, Bo Heartbreaker. And they're very, very different shows. Yeah. But they, <laughs> they all managed to get bundled up. But if you take Sable Heartbreaker, for example, that's uh, a character played by a woman called Serena Jenkins. And I've seen the show um, in a shorter form for a festival called Short and Sweet a couple of years ago. And I was part of the panel that voted her the best <laughs> on stage. And I, I, I remember being absolutely blown away by her stagemanship and craftsmanship and her ability to um, connect with the audience. Now, when I look at the review uh, that she did get, there's some valid criticism in there that I would love to use as the basis of a conversation. But in just picking her up and parading her and uh, um, bullying her in the way she has been, it's it's utterly unfair to somebody who actually treats this as, as a job rather than um, as, as a way to get attention. It's certainly something that I'm always aware of when I'm writing a review, uh, because in, in, uh, I also, as well as presenting this show, sometimes wear a critic's hat. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Um, I'm aware that uh, it's A, it's my interpretation. B, there's, I, I hate writing bad reviews. It really yeah. makes me uncomfortable and unhappy. I think there's sometimes a sense that, and it may be true of some critics, that they really relish writing a bad mm. review uh, because it, it's fun to be vitriolic. But I'm alwa- it always makes me immensely uncomfortable comfortable because I know that I'm um, uh, I'm hurting somebody's personally I'm hurting I'm running the risk of hurting them professionally as well um, and it, it doesn't make me comfortable it certainly doesn't make me happy and I do wish that critics I, I and the best critics I know are very very aware of that responsibility so but sometimes uh, those reviews, as we say, do get republished or taken out of context or, in this instance, republished in a way which, uh, to, to use your word, Simone, were bullying in your, in your view. Oh, indeed. I, uh, yes. In my review, I'm, there's a pull quote that they said, uh, and I quote, there are no jokes, so I'm going to use that for a long time <laughs> on my posters so then people who want to see a one-liner are like, oh, I'm not going to go see her. Well, so you can put that on your poster <laughs> along totally. with... Totally. There are like, no jokes. Was, uh, uh, Triple J Raw National Finalist 2011. Um, uh, you could quote some of the, the reviews you've had at uh, Adelaide Fringe at the previous Melbourne International Comedy festival yeah and actually i got a whole bunch of great ones this year so i can quote them use all those pull quotes and yeah. then just put there are no the jokes. jokes yeah <laughs> totally that works for me thanks for like oh, okay i know what she's about then <laughs> uh, if you would like to see claire sullivan's space cadet it is on tonight 9 p.m at the butterfly club if you have never been to the butterfly club before it's in carson place off little collin street in between swanson street and elizabeth street on your left as you're walking down towards elizabeth uh the butterfly club website is the butterfly where you can find out more details about the other shows that have been programmed this week. Uh, Bo Heartbreaker on Saturday night and uh, Sean Bedlam from Two Bearded Ladies on Friday night. Uh, Simona, I think this is a, a great initiative, so congratulations to you. Ah, 
thank you very much. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing more shows at the Butterfly Club again in future because there's, there's always a lot to see. Anything quickly that you want to plug? Oh, next week, Chris Wallace is doing a cabaret show between Tuesday and Sunday. If you don't know who Chris Wallace is, it's okay, but your life will probably be better if you do. <laughs> is I'll leave it at that. Pop on the website, see what I'm talking about, and I'll see you at the club. TheButterflyClub.com for more information. Simone and Claire, thank you very much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I'm joined in the studio by comic book artist and maker David Blumenstein. David, welcome. Hi, thanks. Um, you have created a new publication called Hashtag Takedown, yeah. uh, subtitled My Evening on a Pier with Pickup Artists and Protesters, um, which I took great delight in uh, reading and perusing the other night, um, partially because I knew that you had gone along back in uh, November 2014 when a notorious international pickup artist came to Melbourne and caused something of a controversy. Yeah. Julian Blank kind of came down to uh, Melbourne and he's a, yeah, like you said, he's a pickup artist. He's a trainer of, I guess, pickup artists. And, um, yeah, I, I've spent a lot of time in private making fun of pickup artists and the things they say with my friends. But uh, I thought, well, he's, he's here, he's in Melbourne, he's doing a free seminar, I should go along and hear what he has to say because I was genuinely kind of interested in, you know, what's he gonna, what's he going to tell us? How, how can I learn to pick up women? I'm married, but I'm interested <laughs> to know. And interested to know from the perspective of somebody who is clearly suspicious of, uh, I guess, the the culture around pickup artists. And the, yeah. um, because it was, I, what I found interesting from kind of uh, reading your comic is that... Um, you wanted to have both sides, to hear both sides of the conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, suspicious is a good word because, you know, I, I obviously I have a lot of friends who, when the enormous kind of firestorm of, of anger against uh, this guy, the guy had said some things on his Twitter and they're in, in videos that he puts online that were, you know, pretty offensive. But to my mind, I was like, well, he, he's kind of calculated to do that it's a sales tactic to get people i think to kind of check him out you know it's his point of difference in the pickup community you know he's the guy who says really nasty little jokes and and gets people to go oh yeah all right i'll come yeah so i figured all right well maybe it'll be interesting to see what he says so you then went along to, uh, I mean, and because his his uh, seminar got bumped from multiple venues as the, the public kind yeah. of outrage at the content of his videos and comments and talks grew. Uh, and so eventually you then found yourself at, what, 6.30pm hanging around St Kilda Pier with mm. angry protesters on one side uh, yeah. and a group of kind of wannabe pickup artists on the other. Well, I, I started to get a little bit worried because, you know, I could see what people were saying online and they were kind of going like, uh, let's name and shame everyone who's there. We'll take photos of everyone who shows up. And then I was like, oh, maybe this isn't going to be, you know, the kind of interesting little romp that I thought it was. It might actually get a little bit disturbing. And, I, you know, I'm self-conscious at the best of times. So I was kind of like, am, am I going to be photographed online and with the thing that says rapist underneath and that sort of thing. So, But then I got invited to... 
the protest by a friend of mine and she was kind of organising it. And I went, okay, um, so I'll be there, but I'll be with the other guys. And if you can just, I don't know, if, if you can tell people not to put you know, photos of me with rapists underneath <laughs> online, that would be good. And she was like, well, I'll see what I can do. Like, yeah. All right. That's, that's so <laughs> did you think of yourself uh, as being a mole, a spy for the opposition, for example, or was it more just a, a genuine curiosity as to what the reality of Julian LeBlanc's talk would be as opposed to the, to the, 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 the misogynist hype that he had himself promoted? Yeah. I, I, the, the main thing was I want to see him talk. And then as it became clearer in the course of the evening that maybe that wouldn't happen, I was there, you know, and I wanted to talk to some of the other guys and I just wanted to see so what, what kind of guys come down. So, you know, it seemed to be kind of a mix of, I thought, young dopes who don't know better and want to, you know, check it out. And I can kind of understand that because I have been a young dope. I've been... I'm probably, arguably, um, getting towards middle-aged dope at this point. But, you know, I've had those thoughts that I think drive people to go to things like this, which is, why don't chicks get into me? Why are they only, like, jerks? I can be a jerk. You know, that kind of thing. I've, I've had thoughts in my mind, which, you know, I think the problem with it is that you say, why are women like this? And it's... As opposed to what, what is the, perhaps the problem with me. What's the problem with me? But also, why does this one person not like me? And sometimes it's just they don't like you, you know. So having gone to that, what I'm sure must have been quite a surreal experience, and I was sitting at home watching it blow up yeah, even right. more on, on Twitter, um, you've turned it into a comic book, hashtag takedown. Um, had you always planned to turn the experience into a comic book, or did that idea come later? When I went along, when I was planning to go along, I thought, well, maybe it would be a comic if anything interesting happens. And then when I thought I might get named and shamed, I thought, well, maybe I have to do a comic just to show why I was there, even if it's not interesting. But I thought it was, you know, this is not a graphic novel or anything. This is a sort of a 40-page comic. So I think it sustains 40 pages. I think it does as well. I, it's uh, an easy read and it's a fun read, but yeah. partially because of the the um, the way that you're... In, you're it's not just that you've inserted yourself into the narrative you are the narrative mm. uh, it's this very intimate first-hand experience of uh, a, a truly bizarre situation uh, and some of the, the the strange people who get involved as well such as the pickup artists who, who talk about trying to pick up protesters while they're there yeah. but, um, but it's also an enjoyable read because of your kind of illustrative style as well uh, yeah. the, the way that you render people there's something rather charming about the 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 way you've kind of, I don't know, drawn people down, pulled the, pulled them into a kind of the the way that you you make images. There's uh, it's simple. Yeah, it's I simple. I wanted but to it's... do it simply because I thought it would make it easier for non-comic reading people to read, but also I kind of didn't want to stack the deck against you know uh, the pickup artists by drawing them as kind of you know hideous slavering. Freak, yeah. Freaks kind of thing. As you say in the intro, names and likenesses have been changed. Also, I've given everyone no hands or feet and a perfectly round head. Yeah. Well, it equalises it a little bit, in my mind, anyway. Um, it's published by Picatia Press. Uh, mm. Did you approach them? Did they approach you? Yeah, I approached I approached them. It's, it's Picatia Press is largely Matt Emery, who's a New Zealander who lives in Melbourne now and publishes 
Melbourne, not Melbourne, Australian and New Zealand comics, mostly New Zealand comics. But yeah, yeah, he he, he liked the thing, and and so he's publishing it. And if people would like to get a copy, David, of hashtag Takedown, my evening on a pier with pickup artists and protesters, where can they find it? Um, they can probably the best is if they go to nakedfella.com, which is my website, N-A-K-E-D-F-E-L-L-A.com. There's a link to the the order, which you can you can order it online now. But it should be in some bookshops in Melbourne, sort of towards the end of the month in June. And I think there's going to be a uh, an event around it at Readings on June nine. Well, I'll uh, let people know about that closer to the date. So you can go to nakedfella, F-E-L-L-A, nakedfella.com, or the publisher, Picketia Press, www.pikitiapress.com for more information about Takedown, my evening on a pier with pickup artists and protesters, written and drawn by my guest, David Blumenstein. David, thank you for coming in. Thank you. And uh, as I said, I hope uh, people kind of delight in it once they get their hands on a copy i just yeah i'm self-conscious at the best of times so i kind of like well we'll see i don't know could cause problems i I hope not well i can just i have have this image of you at the launch hiding behind a large cardboard cutout or something i thought almost of just having like a couple of women talk about the book and me just hide that could be one way to do it we'll talk more about the launch uh, at a future point thanks for coming on thank you Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. We just heard from Ben Mason and his new single, Esmeralda. Uh, you can catch the launch of that on Thursday, the 21st of May, at the Toff in town. Something else you can catch is Neon, the season of independent theatre presented by the Melbourne Theatre Company, now in its third year. And uh, judging from the lineup again this year, it's going to be another kind of theatrical triumph, hopefully. Maybe I'm... Uh, I don't know, I don't think I'm exaggerating because there's some great talent involved in the neon season again this year and there will be certainly, as always, lots to talk about. Uh, the very first cab off the rank for neon this year is a double bill, uh, two plays from MKA Theatre of New Writing. Uh, Lucky is the first play and Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise is the other. Joining us are an actor from each production. We have Morgan Maguire and Johnny Carr. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much, Richard. So, uh, Johnny, let's start with you. You're in Lucky, which is written by uh, creative director of MKA, Tobias Manderson-Galvin, directed by the uh, other creative director at MKA, John Kachoyan. It's being described as a post-punk prison fantasy. What does that mean? Um, I don't know what that means, <laughs> but I can tell you what the play is about. It's um, well, it's really a mashup. Really, there's there's a one story that runs throughout, and it's um, three three convicts who are on the run from their captors, um, set in colonial New Albion. And then there's uh, interspersed with that is uh, more contemporary monologues from which is sort of lifted from quite heightened historical um, moments from our country's uh, forming, I guess. Okay. So that's lucky. And then we have Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. Um, The media release describes it as a broken kitchen sink drama of carnivals and carnivores. (laughs) Morgan, let's uh, take it, leaving the uh, publicity speak behind. What's this one about? (laughs) 
Um, yeah, it's a good question. It's It was inspired by true events that happened in New Orleans a year after Hurricane Katrina, where um, this guy who had been in Iraq, and I think he had probably had a bit of post-traumatic stress, uh, he actually um, had this very dysfunctional uh, relationship with his girlfriend, Addie Hall, and he, in fact, murdered her and cut her up into pieces. That's about as dysfunctional and, as a relationship yeah, look gets. At, yeah, some, yeah, some issues there, I feel. Um, and um, he then went on this big bender for a few days and spent all his money and then jumped off the top of a car park and committed suicide. And he had a letter in his pocket uh, which outlined what he had done and that he had to pay for what he had done with his own life. Uh, and so that was the kind of the... Yes, the colonel for Morgan Rose, the playwright. And, um, yeah, it's kind of, I think, developed from that into no time, no place. But, you know, somewhere in Australia, not a cyclone. Oh, no, not a hurricane, but a cyclone, and um, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. They both sound like very kind of idiosyncratic works, which is very appropriate given the history of MKA, um, and they also sound like interesting works to sink your teeth into, uh, kind of uh, mm. from a performer's point of view. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, fantastic new Australian writing, and yeah, for this uh, lucky in particular, we've really got some great. We play very. Uh, variety of characters and and there's um you know a huge range in what we get to do there's some really sort of broad broadish comedy and then some like you know direct address sort of political speeches so there's a in terms of like what we get to do there's yeah there's a huge amount of stuff to sink your teeth into as a performer yeah yeah and in, in lord willing it's really fun because um the style changes as the play goes on so it goes from uh heightened naturalism maybe to almost um Oh, for want of a better word, I guess more absurdist and it's like through the prism of his psychosis towards the end. So as an actor, it's really fun. You get to do lots of different things throughout your journey, as they say. And have you both worked with MKA before? or I, I haven't, no. This is my first um, first time working with them. They've been great company to work with. Um, I love what they do. Um, yeah, and very excited to begin working with them, I hope. Yeah. yeah, and I'm the same as Johnny. I haven't before, so it's my first time. And, yeah, it's been great. And is it also the first time that you'll have performed within the um, MTC uh, South Bank Theatre? Or uh, Yeah, for me it is. Yeah, I have uh, just did a show with MTC, but it was at the Arts Centre. But this is the first time in that theatre for sure. Um, yep. I was in The Sovereign Wife. Ah, yes. Grimm, yeah. um, uh, in the, the very first, first season. That's right. Uh, that's yeah. right. I'm so yeah. um, upset I missed that show. I that always hear such wonderful it things. It was remarkable. It really <laughs> yeah, yeah. was. And... <laughs> because I, I just went in going, three hours? It's a three-hour-long play? Oh, no, that's going to be so self-indulgent. Oh, and really? then it went on this r- remarkable, mad journey, which managed to take the piss out of out of MTC um, and many other things as well. <laughs> right, um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was... And to my mind, kind of like, certainly it was the great triumph of that first year of Neon in, yeah, in many sure, ways. Sure. Um, yeah, sure, And <clears throat> I, I'm interested to know your your views of, and about the whole Neon experiment, this merging of the MTC, our kind of main stage uh, state theatre company, yeah. um, pulling in the best of the independent sector. Is yeah. it is it a comfortable marriage? Is it, is it an uncomfortable marriage? What's what's your take on that situation? Well, I, I, maybe you're better to comment on this initially. I've, I've sort of just come back to Melbourne from being in Sydney for a while, so I sort of missed... I definitely missed the first year of it, and I saw uh, a little bit last year, but I think it's a great initiative, Um yeah, I, I think it's really exciting to uh, for both 
uh, companies really that are that are involved because uh, hopefully like you're sort of getting people to see these independent shows that wouldn't normally uh, see them but um yeah I, and I think that's that's a really good point. I mean, when we were doing Sovereign Wife, I think the most exciting thing was going in the foyer afterwards and seeing the subscribers with, you know, people that you would only really normally see at independent theatre and everyone was kind of merged and everyone was talking and I thought that was quite exciting, all these different demographics all kind of meeting and, um, yeah... Exciting would be the word that I'd there, use. There was certainly that. in yeah. that in that first year and indeed last year as well that kind of buzz that was in the yeah. foyer um, of people a not knowing what the hell they were going to see, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also yeah that that kind of meeting of the tribes, the fact that you had yeah. the kind of the indie indie theatre fans from kind of Northcote Brunswick, kind yeah. of who might be more uh, used to seeing something at La Mama or something in uh, in someone's backyard or in a cellar as part of Fringe <laughs> yeah. coming into the MTC and and vice versa that kind of crowd who are used to going to see, I know that we're going to see a new production of Shakespeare or Ibsen or Chekhov yes, or sure. a new David Williamson play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. because you know, because the uh, tickets are like reasonably affordable for this sort of stuff that it's uh, you can take a bit of a punt on it as well do you know what I mean? Yeah. You can sort of see something that you wouldn't uh, normally jump into and see because I think with some of the main stage shows and um, they are a bit of a commitment and you sort of like want to know what you're going to see is going to be good and, and that but uh, before you go in but with this sort of stuff like I think it's it's great that it's accessible and that people can sort of just um, jump in and see something that be exposed to something that they maybe normally wouldn't have. Yeah, and the, I think the fun thing about our double feature is it's two kind of really short, punchy shows back to back, and we actually haven't gotten a chance to see each other's yet, so we'll be seeing them tomorrow night at rehearsal. Um, but yeah, no, it's exciting, and seeing lots of um, new playwrights' voices that people may not have heard before and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, Johnny, I know you did uh, what rhymes with cars and girls. Yeah, uh, which was a a delight to see on stage. <laughs> oh, great. Um, uh, so you've got some experience with the MTC, uh, yeah. as uh, the culture of the MTC. Uh, but, Morgan, for you, kind of like, what's the, what's it like kind of working within the MTC, particularly if you're, you're more experienced with independent theatre, for example? <laughs> when we did The Sovereign Wife, we were all just really excited. We are like, oh, hot water. Oh, carpet. Oh, <laughs> Oh, it's so clean. <laughs> so they were like the first things that we were really excited about. Um, oh, look, no, it's great. Um, you know, I guess maybe the difference is, um, yeah, just facilities and access to, I guess, more high-scale production. Um, the prop store. That's right, the costume cupboard. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's like not... Not much of a difference, really, in terms of everyone's really friendly and, you know, very gorgeous and professional and, um, I don't know, I'm not being very articulate. No, I think also, yeah. though, they haven't been, like, heavily involved so yeah, far because we're yet thing. to go into the theatre and I think yeah. that's a massive credit to MKA yeah, because they've really... Sorry. Uh, well, they've really, like, um, treated it in, in such a professional way and, and everything and... Uh, in order to get us to that place to just slot in so the slot in is quite seamless really mm. but that like in terms of all the design and all the designers that have been working on it like it, it's going to be a show that looks looks fantastic sounds fantastic and uh, yeah both the shows or in the show as a whole i think yeah mm. uh, the show is a double feature mka's double feature of lucky and lord willing and the creek don't rise presented as part of the neon season at uh, the mtc's south bank theater in the lawler running from the 14th until the 24th of 
of May, opening night Friday the 15th at 7.30pm. Tickets are just 25 bucks, or you can buy a Neon Pass, which is five plays for 100 bucks, which is pretty good value, and you get... Uh, five independent works, a real range of works as well, presented as part of the Neon Festival of Independent Theatre 2005, including Calamity, which is a, a new exploration of the myth of Calamity Jane, uh, a new play by Patricia Cornelius called Shit. Anytime <laughs> Patricia writes a new play is, is an exciting moment. Seeing this new work, I'm sure, will be a delight. Yeah. Look, just a final question f- uh, for both of you, Morgan and Johnny. Um, people may be familiar with the MTC. What about pe- for people who aren't familiar with MKA? How do you sum up MKA and what it represents as an independent theatre company for people who don't know the company's work? Um, well... I'd I'd say they're a hugely ambitious company who are uh, completely willing to throw their hat in the ring and um, give give voice to something that wouldn't see the light of day. Really, so yeah, exciting, ambitious, and yeah. daring company. Bold and brave and yeah a bit rock and roll um i remember when i first moved down to melbourne from sydney three years ago i saw the economist and it was in some i don't know abandoned warehouse in you know where was it like kensington or something and i was like ooh, exciting but it was yeah i was very impressed by them straight off the bat and um i think it's great that they're encouraging you know new work and really pushing that envelope in australia which i think is really important If you want to get along and see MKA's double feature, Lucky and Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, uh, you can jump online, www.mtc.com.au, or you can call the box office 86880800. The season is running from the 14th until the 24th of May in the Lawler at South Bank Theatre. Uh, Tickets, as we said, just 25 bucks. Johnny Carr, Morgan Maguire, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Have a nice day. Bye. in the, the home stretch of Smart Arts. We began the show this morning talking about contemporary dance with Raphael Bonicella, the artistic director of Sydney Dance Company, about their show Frame of Mind, which is opening tonight at the South Bank Theatre in the Sumner. We're going to bookend the show with another conversation about dance. It's time for our fortnightly segment, Dancing on the Radio. Gerard Van Dyke joins us in the studio, flying solo today. <laughs> yes, flying solo. That no, I, no joke. conjures a great image. Um, no, no joke. She's, um, I think teaching you know being an actual practitioner yep uh well you are an actual practitioner as well don't sell yourself <laughs> short but uh because uh well, we not because we don't have joe but we were going to have a conversation uh anyway but um we have instead joining us in the studio the co-founder and artistic director of the new zealand dance company shona mcculloch welcome to triple r hello nice to be here welcome to melbourne in, indeed in fact, i love melbourne I when did you fly it. in uh, gosh, three days ago, it all just sort of morphs into, you know, one tour. But, um, yeah, we, we premiered in Adelaide and had a great season there at Her Majesty. So we arrived here on Sunday. Great. Now, we're going to talk about your show Rotunda in just a moment. Uh, Jez, any other quick things we should plug at the start of this conversation? Yes. Um, there is a very significant event happening next Thursday night at Dance House. We all know and love and um, often talk about Dance House and the works that are on there. Um, if you go to uh, dancehouse.com.au, you will um, 
uh, oh, geez, if I just got that wrong. Anyway, I'll figure that out in a second and get back to you. Okay. Um, uh, they are having their 2015 program launch. Um, whether you're a supporter, a dancer, a dance lover, you're an artist, you've been on stage there, you've created work there, um, they'd love to see you. Um, and it is on uh, from 6pm next Thursday, May the 14th at 150 Princess Street, Melbourne, Dance House, their program launch. Dancehouse.com.au is indeed the website. Wow, that's a fluke. <laughs> so, Shona, let's talk uh, Rotunda and let's talk about the New Zealand Dance Company, which is New Zealand's kind of dedicated contemporary dance company. Uh, so there's the New Zealand Ballet and there's the New Zealand Dance Company. Um, and is that about it in terms of kind of major kind of dance companies in New Zealand? No, it's not, Good. actually. There's loads of... Um project-based dance companies. There's Atamira, Okarika, um, Black Grace, Footnote. But sort of audaciously, we call this company the New Zealand Dance Company. Kind of against my creative instincts, actually. I was like, oh, that's so boring. God, can't we do better than that? But I work with an amazing kind of consultative group who just said, look, if you want to make a line in the sand and actually get this company out there and working nationally and internationally. Just don't muck about, just, you know, do the business. And actually, they were right. I'm absolutely sure one of the reasons that we've launched very quickly on an international stage is just, you know, the brand is very clear. It's what we're about and what we do. And how old is the company? We only launched publicly in 2012. Wow. So, yeah, and so by, you know, twenty early 2014, we were at Holland Dance Festival, and here we are very excitedly in Australia, you know, and um, uh, I, I don't know how much people know about how difficult it's been for New Zealand work to get to Australia, but it's been almost impossible, you it's, know, to get tours up over here. It's certainly something that I've written a little bit about over at, um, for my day job at Arts Hub, that we see, uh, there seems to be a lot of um, Australian work that goes to New Zealand, um, and whether that be individual performers uh, at performing at Fringe or at Comedy Festival or uh, uh, Christchurch International Arts Festival, for example, but not so much work coming back the other way. N- no. No, I mean, actually, we'd love to see more Australian dance too. You know, we we tend to get Sydney Dance Company um, coming to Auckland, Main Bill. But, you know, I I would love to see a much greater um, vibrancy of exchange of of cultural ideas. And there's a lot of exchange on a dancer level. Lots of New Mm. Zealanders working in Australian companies. Not so many Australians working in our companies. And we're so close. We're just natural touring partners and natural collaborators. And I'd love to see us working more closely. So would I. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I, yes, I've, from a dancer's perspective, um, some of my, some of the people who I admire the most in the dance industry are New Zealand-born, and um, and you know they reside in parts of Australia and back now again in New Zealand as well. Um, I think, and I think there's um, a good comparison to be drawn by the level of technique and standard of dance um, coming out of New Zealand as there is perhaps in Australia. Not to compare or anything mm. like that, but um, all of the dances I've ever seen, contemporary dances I've ever seen come out of New Zealand have been remarkable, really affecting. Hmm. Yeah, no, the, the, we do. We produce more than just rugby players, you know, <laughs> back over there. So the work that you are touring with uh, is called Rotunda. Uh, it's opening at Art Centre Melbourne tonight uh, and running through uh, uh, until the 9th of May, um, presented with Darabin City Brass, a brass band. Now, I know that this work is playing with a different brass band in each location um, and, in fact, 
although it is, uh, a, a, I guess, a commemoration of Anzac and, um, and emphasising that Anzac is not just an Australian story, that the mm. New Zealand uh, nurses and soldiers played a, a key role as well. It didn't grow out of a desire to commemorate the Anzac centenary, but it grew out of your personal interest in discovery that brass band music was much more than just your standard old umpapa umpapa. Yeah, no, I just sort of stumbled upon this gold mine um, of um, really unheard contemporary brass music written by some of New Zealand's really crash hot composers, you know, Gareth Farr and Don McGlashan, who's, you know, just a wonderful guy and a wonderful songwriter. But he grew up playing um, snare drum and euphonium in a brass band. And so I feel like I, I just sort of peeled the top off this amazing culture that is a volunteer culture, which I think is really interesting. You know, they're, they're passionate musicians, they're uh, it's a it's a working class culture. The brass instruments were brought out to New Zealand by the early 1860s, which when you think about it, you know, Europeans only landed in New Zealand or settled in New Zealand in 1840. By 1860, there was something like 60 brass bands, which is really phenomenal. So mm. I found it very, very curious and went back to the roots, which is obviously regimental, and started to think about the way that brass bands assist us even in modern ritual. And these rituals are very important for us. You know, the, how, how do we celebrate? How do we farewell? How do we welcome? How do we grieve? How do we um, commemorate? And actually, you know, the brass band turns up having rehearsed every Tuesday and Saturday morning and they play for us. And some of this music is just so beautiful. Does, to what degree has the music shaped the, the choreography in the show? Well, I worked with Don, and we, you know, first, the sort of first stage was just really listening to a huge array um, of music ranging from, you know, stunning hymns. One of them was written in 1548, you know, Coventry Carol. That's pretty, it's pretty awesome, you know, track record to have something still played now that was written that long ago. And and I kind of knew that I wanted to, um, I wanted to make a work that people could easily engage with. So I worked with a dramaturg, we worked on a structure, and then the sort of pieces fell into place from there, where were the best pieces to put where, yeah. Um, and choreographically, I'm really interested um, to know how Maori tradition um, is, you know, because we have our own stories here of, you know, the Anzac tradition, as, um, as Richard was talking about, and um, our, our Indigenous soldiers um, you know, included, and I'm really interested to hear, you know, your equivalent, I guess, of that. Mm-hmm. Well, the, you know, what's interesting about the Māori culture is, A, in in society in New Zealand now, it's inseparable um, to a white European, to, to I mean, most most white Europeans will, will know at least a handful of what we call te reo, or the language. Um, people are very, very proud of the integration of uh, Māori with um, what we call Pākehā, or white, white culture. And it's almost impossible um, as a New Zealand creative to make a work and not not integrate it and tell that part of the mm-hmm. story. I mean, it's interesting, you've got black, black diggers has been on, and I understand that those are very, very new stories that are starting to emerge. Um, I mean, you know, the haka is the most famous New Zealand dance, 
Um, and Māori are natural warriors. They are an incredibly fierce, protective, territorial um, tribe of people. And, um, and of course, you know, we've got a lot of shame about that too. The New Zealand land wars where the Pākehā came in and slaughtered thousands of um, Māori. But the First World War was really a very, very important time in our cultural history where Māori and Pākehā fought alongside each other. And... Pākehā began to understand the strength of, of their, their nation um, and, and their cultural efficacy in war. So they're a really huge part of the story. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a very strange relationship with um, with nothing really like the. Um, unfortunately, for for I think the more progressive thinkers in in Australia, um, and I also think that ANZAC means the ANZAC um, you know uh, memory means quite a. It has a lot of different meanings across Australia. There's a lot of conservatism. There's also a lot of, um, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, I guess, socially um, active um, voices against it. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's a strange place to know where to land in it, I think. Yeah, which is one of the reasons I'm, I'm intrigued to see uh, to see your work, uh, Rotunda, being coming from a country that is in some ways so culturally parallel and similar to Australia, but uh, in which, uh, which shows such leadership in terms of um, working with its Indigenous peoples mm. and its Indigenous culture. Um, Shona, you and I have spoken in the past for an article I wrote about, uh, for Arts Hub about the influence of Polynesian dance on the, the choreographic language and choreographic mm. style in New Zealand. Perhaps we could revisit that a little mm. bit as well because I'm really intrigued to know not only how uh, Maori, uh, Maori culture is reflected within Rotunda itself uh, in terms of the, the, the dance language and the movement, but yeah, that bigger picture of mm. the the Polynesian influence in uh, dance in New yeah. Zealand. Well, I think one of the reasons that you know Australian choreographers enjoy working with New Zealand dancers is that we're we're very good at getting in and out of the ground. So we're, mm. we're yeah. I would t- entirely agree <laughs> with that. And for those who don't understand what that means, it's about jumping, landing, literally getting in and out, getting on and off the ground. Yeah. yeah. And the roots of that are that Pacific and Maori culture is very stamp based. So it's very, very connected. You'll see with the haka, that's another classic example, very, very rooted to the ground. So that whole idea of of the body being connected, connected deeply to the earth. So the Maori have um, they describe everything in terms of the body so if they look at a hillside they will talk of it talk about it as being the woman's breasts you know the whole of the New Zealand landscape is described as a body so actually if you think about that deep connection between their own physicality and the spirituality of the land so uh, and the other reason I think is that the Pacific cultures are very percussive and very rhythmic and they are very very musical highly intelligent in terms of their musicality, and I think that affects the way that we move as well. Um, oh, look, I'm really excited. To, I'm coming on Saturday night. Great. Um, I'm really excited to see it. And, um, I mean, I, it's really interesting. I've always liked the brass band sound without really thinking about it that much. It's mm. been just, I guess, a, an intuitive like of mine. Um, and uh, so there's a cast of eight, is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. there's eight dancers, and then we're also touring with um, a New Zealand Army band percussionist. What's an awesome story is that the General of the Defence Force in New Zealand allowed us to tour with a New Zealand Army band and I just go that's so cool you know this is a contemporary dance company and Mm. the military 
it's That's actually, a crossover that wouldn't happen often anywhere, I would imagine. Yeah, so so anyway, they've lent us Cameron, who's a percussionist, and he kind of plays really this role in the work, you know, because rhythm and the sound of a drum has actually been a very important tool in military. It's the call to action, it's walk in line, mm. step together, don't think outside the square, just do as you're told. It's a so choreography of sorts, isn't that's it? That's right, yeah. exactly. So nine performers and then Darabin City Brass and Mark Today, who is a really fantastic conductor who works with the New York City Ballet and all sorts of amazing symphony orchestras. And he, he saw the show in 2013 and just said, oh, it's it's cool, I really want to be involved and can I come and conduct? And I was like, <laughs> OK. <laughs> the more I hear about Rotunda, the more excited I am to see it. It's opening tonight at uh, Arts Centre Melbourne in the Playhouse and running through until the 9th of May. Tickets from 30 bucks. you can book at artcentremelbourne.com.au and if you would like to learn more about Shona's company, the New Zealand Dance Company, nzdc.org.nz. Go and check them out. There's some videos of uh, uh, Rotunda on the site uh, which will give you more of a taste for the show if your appetite is not already whetted by the conversation that we've just had had. Shona McCulloch, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, thank you. And Jez, I think we're going to have to wrap up because there's only five minutes left of the I show. I know, wow. So uh, I'll catch you in a fortnight's time. Yes, look forward to it. And, we'll and there's plenty to talk about. We'll talk more dance then. Hmm. just about time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company, and I'll catch you next week, where my guests will be, amongst other people, the Minister for Creative Industries, Martin Foley.